Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. How much diversity can a religious movement support without irretrievably diluting itself beyond all recognition? That was the question that kept popping into my head when I talked with David J. Goldberg. David, who sadly passed away in 2019, was an incisive author, long-standing senior rabbi of London's liberal Jewish synagogue, and a consistent critic of Israeli attitude towards the Palestinians, believing that many of his co-religionists in Israel had lost sight of fundamental Jewish values. But perhaps even more controversially still, David believed that the whole question of who is a Jew needed to be profoundly readdressed. So the obvious question to ask is, why did you write this particular book? What were your, what were your motivations? What did you hope to accomplish? Uh, what is, uh, well, let, let, let me just put it there. What, what, what did you hope to accomplish by, by writing this? Well, the effect it had was totally different from my intent in the set. Maybe I'm being naive about this, but in fact, only three of the eight chapters deal with Israel. Now, right. my views about Israel, my critical views have been well known for a long time. Um, but I was getting to the, well, having retired and the end of my working career, it really bothered me the difference between the theology that as a rabbi I was expounding weekly at services in prayer or sermons and the reality that the overwhelming majority of Jews nowadays are not believing Jews. Right. They are Jews for any number of reasons, tradition, family, persecution, you name it. But belief in God, certainly the God of the five books of Moses, the Old Testament, uh, comes way down the list. And I wanted to explore this. And as honestly as possible, my own ambivalence about it, my own belief. Um, And I think that, um, for example, the most um, radical thing I say is about who is a Jew. Right. Well, I say basically a Jew is anyone who says he or she is one. Because it would not be for me to turn around and arrogance in the extreme to turn around and say, oh, no, you're not, because your mother or your grandmother weren't Jewish. Right. Apart from being an absolutely fascist sort of way of defining (laughs) Jew. You know, Goebbels would have accepted that. Mm. I decide who's a Jew. Um, But that's been ignored in a way. And, uh, and it was just focused on the Israel business, isn't it? it? Well, I suppose a critic, a, a reviewer, is looking for what to give it a headline. Mm. And um, Those are those superficial critics as opposed to what we're doing. You see, this is why we're doing what we're doing. We're well, trying to get to the big picture. It will be interesting to see if we do get that, <laughs> or end up with Israel, inevitably, as 
most conversations about. But the, the, there is an aspect of this, so I do. I do very much want to. Uh, I do want to explore cultural identity. Yeah. What is it? Uh, how do we decide who is a Jew? What it means to be a Jew? What Jewish values are? Mm. You see, all these things are on my list. Yeah. Um, and, and and then I'd like to I'd like to actually talk um, about the whole idea of religion and society. Can religion be a force for good? Interfaith dialogue. You've mm. you've been. Uh, uh, at the forefront of, of many of those efforts as well. But there, there is something specifically with Israel, so rather than, I don't want to pretend to be one of these, these, these critics uh, who focuses single-mindedly on, on Israel, but there is this issue of, of, of a level of indignation that you've had for a very long time um, of how Israel in the public consciousness tends to be uh, regarded as equivalent to Judaism, that they are the spokespeople for the Jewish people, and, yeah. that, and that if one is critical of Israel, or if one is critical of Zionism, then one is necessarily anti-Semitic, and so forth and so mm -hmm. on. And, 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 and if one is a Jewish person who is critical, one gets these labels of being a self-hating Jew, and, mm -hmm. and so forth, as mm -hmm. you've said yourself. And in fact, y you mentioned in, in your prologue to the book that you were considering calling it Confessions of a Self-Hating Jew, mm -hmm. um, and then were... Um, and then we're talked out of that uh, mm. by, by other people. But um, getting back to the responses, so I never actually let you finish because uh, you, you said you wanted to explore those particular issues. The focus, uh, the, the broader issues, but the focus was actually on, uh, on just on Israel. Was there anything that had to do with any criticism that actually came through on Israel that you thought was insightful or useful or, or highlighted or did it, did it move things forward in any particular way? No, uh, in terms of a global effect, no. Um, or even a local effect. Well, what interested me, I, I mean, it was quite widely reviewed, the book. Um, not as much as I, as I would have liked by um, places like the Times or the, and so forth, but you know, Telegraph, quite a few reviews, um, which were on the whole very favourable. And interestingly, although they concentrated on my views about Israel, I did detect a sea change, hmm. which obviously reflects the way that the constant apologias for Israel over the years have worn thin now. Right. In other words, these reviewers are mainly, it has to be said, mainly Jewish ones, which again is in in a way it's preferable because mm -hmm. the non-Jewish ones I expect to be critical of Israel, you know, in the public perception. The Jewish viewers are much more sympathetic than they used to be to my views, actually. In other words, maybe the voice crying in the wilderness for a long time now gets more credence than it once did. As I put it sardonically, um, I've become a national treasure almost, when you get older, oh, you know, like somebody like Wedgwood Ben, <laughs> you know, who was the, uh, the, the terrifying figure of Marxism or something, or Dennis Skinner on the back benches in the House of Commons. But you get old enough and you become cuddly and lovable in your eccentricities. So I think maybe I'm moving into that public persona now. That doesn't make you toothless though, does it? I mean, if you I get... Hope, well, no, I hope not, but uh, I, I think as one gets older, you, you have less hope of changing the world and probably spend more time observing its follies with wry amusement 
I'm saying we've been there before. We've been there before. Right. We've seen this before. Which is why, as I say, when I read the newspapers, I always start with the sports news, because that is new. <laughs> Everything else on the front page that I've seen before. Recycled. You know. <laughs> exactly. Um, but okay, a football result is different every time. Right, you know. right. And it's objectively true as well. How, whatever import it might have, it's, uh, yeah. it, it actually did happen. And yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And it is yeah. true. You, you do dedicate the book. I want to talk about the snowballing effect and the impact that it's had, the voice crying in the wilderness, which is starting to be heard. You dedicate the book to Tony Judd, mm. who famously, as you pointed out, um, rose to prominence as far as being a public intellectual is concerned. He was long highly regarded in, uh, as a historian and mm -hmm. so forth. But as a public intellectual in the United States, through this controversial uh, essay he wrote in mm -hmm. the, uh, 2003 in the New York Review mm -hmm. of Books Criticizing Israel, and you mm -hmm. mention your uh, affinity uh, to, uh, with many of the things that he, that, that, that he had said, uh, specifically this, this notion that um, in the diaspora and, and elsewhere, the Holocaust is overused. It's used as, as, as this cudgel to justify uh, Israel's behavior. There is this notion of identifying any critical uh, assessment of Israel or Israeli uh, uh, policy with, uh, with anti-Semitism. Um, and, and, and a denial of the fact that the Jewish lobby actually exists. In fact, the, the, the the acknowledgement or, the, or the, the attempt to recognize the Jewish lobby as an existing organization is itself tantamount to anti-Semitism. It's a fact, it's anti-Semitism, yeah. So th these are things that he had pointed out, that you have pointed out, and as part, is there a sense in your view of this growing awareness that more and more people are saying these things, that it is, it is, it is, becoming, uh, it is becoming accepted, it's being brought out into the open, this, this, because at the end of the day, this attempt to to equate in a trivial way any sort of uh, any sort of differing opinions to these horrible things. You're anti-Semitic because you think this. It's an attempt to muzzle popular discourse. Mm. It's an attempt to muzzle rational, reasonable mm. criticism. Mm. And so is there a sense that the muzzling has finally been overcome and that people are talking more and more about this and your book is contributing to that? Do you get a sense that this is more and more popular in the public discourse to at least engage in this direction? I, I, I think so, and particularly with the young, actually. Um, Peter Beinart wrote a book, and he right. said, I've not seen it yet, it's not been, uh, not been published yet in this country as far as I'm aware, but um, he has pointed out both in a New York Review of Books article a couple of years ago and in this book how alienated the American Jewish young are becoming mm -hmm. with this constant Israel good, Palestinians bad, and the simplification right. of a very complex debate. So, um, hopefully it is having an effect. Um, a willingness to not go through the same tired old arguments as to, you know, oh, we've put forward a peace plan in, and they've rejected it, they don't want peace. You know, the very right. simplistic level at which I'm afraid debate in America does take place. About it certainly Israel. does, but to be fair, that that's also a global phenomenon. I mean, it does it does perhaps not to the extent that the simplicity is perhaps uh, is certainly not exclusively American. Perhaps it takes place at, no. a, at a higher level in America. The simplicity or uh, lower I think level. It, it, not sure. Um, but I'm always aware. You see, when I go to Europe, 
continental Europe was part of Europe. Don't forget it. Um, England is part of Europe. Allegedly. When did that happen? You know, when I speak to Jewish audiences in France or in Italy, which I know particularly well, well, parts of the Jewish community in Italy, I'm very aware that those 22 miles of La Manche saved me from a very different experience of the Holocaust. Sure. And it is still visceral with the French community and the Italian communities, two examples. Right. And therefore, one has to modify the way in which one states the argument that we've used the Holocaust for too long as an excuse. You know, I can feel free to say that quite openly in England or America, more so, or South Africa or whatever, but I've got to be much more deferential when addressing right. because I can really put their hackles up very easily by appearing insensitive to what they, their grandparents' generation went through. And therefore, you lose the argument before it's begun even. But doesn't that cut both ways? I, I mean, because in fact, it seems to me when I'm reading your book and when I'm thinking about it myself, this, this sense of manipulation, this sense of utilization of the Holocaust to further a political end that has properly nothing to do with, with this horrible, egregious crime, one of the greatest crimes against humanity ever perpetrated, that by using it, by bringing it out as a cudgel to deny, uh, to deny dispassionate, rational criticism of, a, of an existing state is, is opprobrious. It's, one of, it's, it's a horrible moral act to actually be doing. And, and to some extent, it, it, uh, perhaps I'm getting carried away, but, but, but I really feel quite passionately that, um, that out of respect for the enormity of what the Holocaust is, it should not be cheapened. It should not be used as a political tool or political thrust. And so I, I certainly, obviously, <laughs> appreciate the, the, what you're saying and the sensitivity. But it, it, it's, it, I, I personally get indignant when people trot out uh, this, th th this horrible crime against humanity and therefore somehow dull its impact by using it every single day yeah. uh, as a justification for something that properly has nothing to do with it whatsoever. Well, of course, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, it started with Nachum Begin, actually. Right. Uh, and, and, and he was obsessed by the Holocaust and an abiding dislike of Germany as a result, you know. Um, to the extent that, I mean, he made that mad comparison during the Lebanon invasion and the siege of Beirut well, you know, he crowed that he had Arafat Hitler in his lair. Him, you know, I mean, to, that, that, I mean, to make any comparison of the enormity of the two was a sign of a deranged mind, actually. Right, right. Um, but uh, indeed, in Begin's very controversial time as Prime Minister in Israel, there were several occasions when Holocaust groups, groups of survivors, protested publicly that by his constant harking on the Holocaust, he cheapened it. And so you're absolutely right, that there is far too easy a tendency to invoke it on every occasion and therefore cheapen it uh, and its impact. And, and lead to some sense, certainly in, in North America, which is, 
much further removed, you talked about mm. the, the difference in going across the channel mm. and, 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 and being in, in the land where people were deported, people mm. were killed and, and, and so forth and, and, and the, the different effect that that has. And, um, when one goes further afield, when one takes a boat or a plane in the other direction mm. and one goes to the United States, it seems as if it's um, these words and concepts are thrown around uh, much more glibly yeah. that, that yeah. than, than, than they would be. Uh, which of course is not to say that people aren't sensitive and people are, are, aren't aware, but but this this notion of uh, at least in my experience, in addition to the moral cheapening of these things, you get into a state of entrenched paranoia that everybody's out to get us, mm. and mm. and 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 therefore um, therefore if people deny anything that Israel is doing, they're anti-Semitic because they're deep down they're all anti-Semitic all yeah. along, and yeah. here you see you see the evidence of it, yeah. and you get into this entrenched paranoia, um, which leads you to question: Is there anything that this particular state could do that would be somehow criticized by these people? Is there anything that they w they might consider beyond the pale? There's this identification with whatever the state of Israel decides to do. Uh, and I'm looking at, at, at some more militant aspects of, uh, of the Jewish lobby in the United States in particular, that there is this equivalence with whatever the state elects to, to pursue as a policy, uh, therefore is worth defending, and if you criticize it, you are, you, you are all these horrible things. You're anti-Semitic, you're this, you're that, you're the other mm. thing. Mm. Um, and it seems, uh, and, and this is what you've pointed out, this is what Tony Judd has pointed out, this is what other people have pointed out, that logically, of course, you're, you're left in a very difficult situation because you're eventually suggesting this notion that there is nothing that this state can do that is somehow worthy of criticism or, or, or comment. That's maybe a bit too extreme. Please, uh, come back. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think where it leads you ultimately in the argument is to say, well, yes, maybe Israel has done certain things that can be criticized, but we're still better than Syria or Saudi Arabia. Right. We are the only democracy right. in the Middle East. Right. And that becomes the ultimate rationale and justification, as it were. We make mistakes like any democracy makes mistakes, you know. Um, that, that is the fail-safe position. Right. But that's a far cry from the grand glorious dreams of, well, of Israel that we're better than, well, better than Hamas. Or, well, or I, I know it's a great moral equivalence test, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I agree, it's, it's fairly threadbare. And one can unpick it as well on the lines of, you know, well, Israel is a democracy indeed within the green lines. It's a very robust democracy, very critical democracy. Um, but what goes on in the occupied territories? I won't call them Judea and Samaria to justify. I, that does not surprise me. Um, no. Um, what go, nor will I call them disputed territories. That for a while was a favoured mm. gambit of whichever Israeli government. Um, what goes on there is certainly not democracy. And um, I, I know deliberately, I, I caused great, great outrage um, in 2002 or so it would have been when I used the dread word apartheid for what goes on, I made the very clear distinction as I'm making now between Israel within the green lines, the pre-1967 borders, and Israel in the occupied territories where it's under military rule, right. where for heaven's sake people travel on separate roads so they don't have to meet, uh, where the 
Jewish settlers are under Israeli law, the Palestinians are under military law from the right. time of the uh, British mandate, you right. know. Now, given their this patent difference in their status, their rights, their liberties, what else is it but apartheid, you know? Now, um, it's quite interesting. Uh, it was a Yom Kippur sermon on Conlidre, the holiest night of the year, packed congregation, always a lot of uh, visitors, Americans among others. And I was aware while delivering it that this sermon uh, was being listened to with great intensity, you know. And at the end one could hear murmurs of approval. And I thought it was a fairly good sermon. Um, but an American came up to me after and had to be restrained from hitting me, you know? Really? Yeah, in the Sydney <laughs> Army, you know, the stewards of us. I was quite taken aback. But um, uh, the papers picked it up, you know, the uh, newspapers and so forth. And because it was misuse of the word apartheid. Now, now, to dare accuse Israel of employing apartheid tactics was oh, the most self-hating Jewish thing you could do, you know? Right. Now the word has come much more into discourse, which again is, um, I suppose, it's the black arts of PR, how repeated use of a word... Numbs its effects. Numbs its effects, absolutely. I remember how shocked one was in the 19 early 1970s, after the Six-Day War, when the Soviet Union, in its propaganda, started accusing the Jews, Israel, of Nazi tactics. And that was so offensive at the time, you know, to our tormentors, our person, to compare. Absolutely. But then, of course, I remember going even further back, um, France and Algeria when France behaved very badly, it's a very brutal civil war, very brutal. And the criticism of France was they're using SS tactics mm. and they've sort of learned from the oppressors. Um, so, uh, you know, I suppose two things. If you use the word often enough, you make it familiar. And then you have to think of an even bigger insult next time. Right. You know, right. who would you accuse them of being like next time? Uh, and on the other hand, it, it, it just numbs the effect as on the, of using an idea like that. But of, but of course, words, words matter. I mean, the reason why you, you chose this particular word was to be provocative. And, and it seems, to, well, that's my set, so mm. tell, tell me, to mm. correct me if I'm wrong. No. But deliberately provocative. De yeah. Deliberately provocative and the reason you were, it seems to me, you were being deliberately provocative is that you believe so passionately in the principles and, and the violation of these principles that is behind us. You, exactly? you believe, uh, I want to transition, as I promised I would, to this to notion of, of who is a Jew and Jewish values. Um, and and from, your, from your books, not, not just the, uh, that is not, this is not the way, but, but, but other books, you, you've been consistently enunciating this idea of justice as a core Jewish value. Mm -hmm. And so when you think that the, the Jewish people can be 
in any way justifiably tarred with being unjust, it seems to me you feel naturally behooved to speak out and, and shout it from the highest possible rooftops because you think this is a, not only a violation of one particular state, but a violation of what it in fact really means to be properly Jewish. Yeah. Well, thank you for defending me in that way. Uh, but basically, I, I think what you're saying, very flattering of you, but it, it's true. I, I was saying, I, I want you my people, my stiff-necked, obdurate people, will you please consider what this is doing to our sense of self and to Jewish values? Yeah. And um, I, I'm a much, much more impressive person than I am. Nechem Leibovitz, who was a um, very great Israeli Talmudic scholar, modern one, died about 10 years ago, very orthodox. Um, absolutely punctilious in his observance and so forth. And he said long time ago, you know, I don't worry what the occupation is doing to the Palestinians. God knows they're inured to it and, and right. they will look after themselves. I worry what it's doing to the psyche and the morality of the Jewish of Jews and right. the Jewish people. Um, and, and that is it. It's, uh, it is a moral issue. So, if I were to ask you, what are Jewish values? Mm. Uh, how would you respond? And in fact, I am going to ask you that. So, what, what, what are mm. Jewish values? What, what does that even mean, Jewish values? What it means, and we'll go and enunciate them in a minute, what I take them to be, or core Jewish values, but what it means is that over millennia, let's say Moses was circa 1500 BCE, 1500 to 1250 is where scholars would date the Exodus. Um, so over three and a half thousand years, therefore, somewhere, I would say, in the Jewish DNA, wherever we may be scattered, wherever we've lived in the world, there's been a sense that the exodus, freedom, therefore, is a core Jewish value. Love of freedom. Uh, Heine put it rather well, the German Jewish poet. He said, ever since the exodus, uh, freedom has spoken with a Hebrew accent. Hmm. Um, so I, I take that to be a very basic Jewish value. And I think the great, it's like Kant's categorical imperatives, they are indivisible. The great joy and pleasure of moral philosophy is that you have to do your Occam's razor, relativism and so forth, and comparing issues, and that's very nice and intellectually satisfying. But I think the basic values, they're not divisible. Mm -hmm. um, we know that freedom is dependent on so many geopolitical other factors. But as a concept, it's a whole one, an integral one. So I think you can't be true to Jewish history by saying we proclaim freedom, but not for the Palestinians. Right. You know, you can say, how can we bring about a just solution that gives them freedom as well? Um, 
In fact, just, just to, I'm going to let, let, let you come back, but I, I mean, I, I would argue intellectually, um, one has a moral imperative if one is looking at something like freedom to, to, to closely examine the people uh, for whom that very value is actually under threat. Those are the people who need it the most. It's, mm -hmm. like, it's like free speech. One has to actually, if one's talking about free speech, it's all very well and good to be, to be purporting free speech if you happen to live in a democracy where everybody can say what it is that they want. And you say you believe in free speech, I say I believe in free speech. That's a part of my values. But it's, it's much more difficult to defend it and much more important to defend it when it's actually under threat. Mm. Um, sorry, but no, I... No, no, no. Well, you, you, uh, but you see, even in democracy, um, many, many years ago, uh, when the Salman Rushdie affair happened, uh, now, I'm one of the few people in the world to have actually read the Satanic Crisis from cover to cover. <laughs> I, I'm very old fashioned. If I'm given a book for review, you should read it. I, I feel you should read it, not <laughs> just the fantasy piece, you know. So, I worked because I was doing a piece for a newspaper at the time about the whole issue when it's burnt in the streets of uh, Bradford and so forth, which absolutely horrified me. Mm. Book burning. Although, God help us, the Israelis did that. At, DAS, uh, at um, Beersite University uh, in the 70s. Really? They, unbelievable. I'd have to look it up, the exact... I promise you, it happened. Sure. I couldn't believe that Jewish people would burn books. These were provocative books that were, you know... Whatever. Unbelievable. Uh, in, in Begin's time. Um, but the Satanic Verses, when you but were... The Satanic Verses was burnt in Bradford, coming back to it. And I was doing this piece for the, one of the newspapers in England because I couldn't believe the mealy-mouthed, weasley comments of... They were all Labour MPs, as it happens, mm. because they are, are very particularly popular in the North, in deprived areas, perfectly understandably, socialism for social justice and so forth. So these were all Labour seats in constituencies in Yorkshire with a large Muslim population. And the type of weasel comment from these MPs was, while in no way condoning book burning... He shouldn't have written it. We, no, not quite. <laughs> oh. We can understand the offence and the fury of Muslim leaders. Um, and I thought that's against you, oh, such a feeble argument. It's not even an argument. It's it doesn't, argument. doesn't mean anything, it in doesn't, fact. Well, exactly. Um, so I, I wrote a fairly sardonic piece about this in, in the independent newspaper it was at the time. Um, but I had to read the book for it, you know. Right. So what I'm saying is, even in a democracy, free speech can be under threat, actually. Right. You know, you're quite right. It's much more important for those who don't... Uh, have it or enjoy it, which is why organizations like Penn are so important. Um, but, but in a way, that's, that's exactly my point, because you're pointing to one instance when it really was under threat. And, and in that instance, rather than saying weaselly, vacuous mm -hmm. words, um, that's when you have to actually stand up. Most of the time, it's not terribly difficult to say, oh, no, yeah, somebody should no. write this, somebody should write that. But it's exactly then, when fatwas are declared on somebody because they're saying something, that's mm. when it really matters for you to stand up and say something clearly 
and transparently so that uh, your, your, your views can be heard. And if you're not doing that, it's not just being craven. It, it seems to me it's, it's, a, it's, it's doing such a gross disservice to what it, it is that you believe. values that you believe in, absolutely. Right. Or pretend to believe in. Yeah, yeah. At any rate. And speaking which of which, I, I cut you off because yeah. I never let you get back to exactly what, when I asked you what Jewish values yeah, were. Yes, so I've given you one. You gave then. me one. Yeah. <laughs> um, then I'd move on to a second one, and this is one um, I, I've defended quite strongly in as it were, Christian-Jewish polemic over the years, you know. Um, the simplistic contrast is between Judaism, the religion of justice, Christianity, the religion of love. Hmm. Um, and we've harbored those two uh, definitions for a long, long time. Right. Um, and I have argued in theological pieces that perhaps justice could be deemed superior to love in the sense that love is blind, um, love is partial, justice should be impartial and hence all the exhortations in the uh, Bible about um, don't pervert justice by deferring to the poor or being overly obsequious to the mighty. But justice, justice shall you follow. You know, try and keep it an impartial principle. Um, so justice tempered with compassion has, you know, has be concerned for the widow, the orphan, the farmers. That has been a Jewish value, a very strong Jewish value, back to the five books of Moses, back to the Bible, and one that I think, again, allied to freedom, should bring about a more balanced assessment of the Israel-Palestine conflict and the just claims of the Palestinian, um, and has been disregarded you know, the classical defense used to be, this is a tragic conflict of two rights. You know, not therefore, right and wrong, but as it were, insoluble. insoluble. Right? It's awful, you know, how can we sort of bring about some kind of uh, compromise between two rights? Well, again, I must say quite frankly, um, getting older and more fearless, you know, <laughs> I don't see a tragic equal conflict between a very tenacious memory of the promised land of 3,000 years ago and the fact of expelling maybe up to 750,000 people who actually live on the land and have been living there for generations. I don't see any balance. Looked of, at the cool light of justice, looked just mm. completely at this objective, dispassionate mm. window of justice. Uh, one can go forwards. It's, it's not irreconcilable. One can actually, one can go forwards towards a just, a just understanding. One could, um, if one was dispassionately following. You know, there's a very great friend of mine 
who was the PLO um, representative here. Um, and then he moved on to greater things. He was in Washington. He was there, and then, which is fairly thankless task. I was going to say Washington is a greater thing. Anyway, well, it's a, <laughs> a different thing. <laughs> a different thing. And then he went to Russia, uh, um, which this was more sympathetic. But he's back here. He's a, an academic now. Um, but we always used to say that honestly, we could solve the Palestinian. Israel conflict in half an hour, if left to ourselves, you know, to sit down. Uh, and I think I mentioned this, I did mention this in the preface to the book. Um, when I retired, and it was a big, big service for me, uh, my farewell service, and a fief came, a fief Sophia, and he signed, or he gave a little, wrote a little tribute for the um, service menu. And he said, and I, I treasure it as a, he said, with enemies like David, I don't need friends. You know, Jack, um, I very much enjoyed. That's quite <coughs> I, a tribute. I, well, I felt so, I felt so. Um, and if that makes me a self-hating Jew, then so be it, you know. Mm. I mean, I can't really intellectually engage with people who can be so ridiculous. If there were, an adherence to the idea of justice, dispassionate justice, then of course one could solve. Uh, it will never satisfy the extremists on either side, because by their very sure. nature, compromise sure. is not... Sure, it's not part of, part not, of the way they look at the world. It, not, not part of their outlook, absolutely. But, um, but that's all the more reason why one should, as hastily as possible, try to come to some sort of just solution. Yeah. Rather than be hostage but to, to, to those. Views. One's also got to be aware of the, and willing to face the political implications. By which I'm, again, maybe I'm incredibly naive. But it seems to me that if 250,000 Israelis want to live beyond the Green Line, on the West Bank, then fine, do so under Palestinian law in just the same way that over one million Palestinians live in Israel proper under Israeli law. Yeah. You know, if you're that attached to the land, then okay, accept that you're going to be... Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but that seems in keeping with basic principles of justice well, that well, you were enumerating. You know. I'd have thought so. I'd yeah. have thought so. Um, and I suppose on the Palestinian side, one's got to be aware that full restoration of the Palestinian refugees is after 60 years now, 64 years since 1948, it's not going to happen. And it is a rhetorical flourish to a large extent. Because as I said in the book, you know, I, I, I knew um, Edward Said slightly. And uh, Edward with his impeccable Savile Row suits and his position at Columbia University uh, and all the prestige and power that he had, I hardly thought it was likely. He's not your typical refugee looking he's to return. Not, exactly, not looking to return <laughs> right. to Ramallah. Right or wherever, Jenin or something, you know. So 750,000 will not be returning, we know that. Uh, but surely it was possible, and Israel did offer this, not enough, but originally, to make monetary 
compensation and reuniting families, the way these things happen in the rest of the world right. and have done after any major conflict, you know. So one would have thought that it, it is possible to, to solve this thing. But the goodwill has got to be there. And I think it's patently not there in Israel. I have to say that. Um, the whole settler movement is the tail wagging the dog now. Right. And no Israeli government feels strong enough or principled enough to dare say this is going to involve sacrifices, both of land and of citizenship, if you want to stay there. Th this brings up something. Um, I do want to move back away from Israel, but since we're back on it, there, yeah. there, was, there was one aspect that, that I found puzzling. So perhaps you, you can let me know if, if you're puzzled by this or, or, or not. Um, when I looked at some of the reviews uh, of your book, it was pointed out uh, that as a, as a, one of the major planks was this, uh, this false equation this false equivalence between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, this idea that if you say something, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're labeled as an anti-Semite. To me, um, there, seems, there seems to be a subtlety there which is, which is glossed over, um, because it's, I, I'm not even sure it's this equivalence of anti-Zionism. There are three things going on, it seems to me. There is Zionism as a philosophy, and what Zionism is. There is anti-Semitism as some uh, racial epithet which is hurled around or some mentality, some you know, horrible mentality which some people have where they're, they're acting in a racist way. And then there is criticism of Israel. One can be a Zionist, one can believe in the, in the tenets of Zionism and the Zionist movement and, and logically one can clearly uh, uh, still be neither an anti-Semite nor somebody who doesn't have great issues with the current political climate that's going on. So for me, this, this notion that, well, the, the, the equivalence of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism is wrong, and that's one of the main arguments that, that Rabbi Goldberg is saying, that that's not even the way I read it. I read it as criticism of Israel should not be equated with anti-Semitism. Yes. And that's, that's not anti-Zionism. That's no. something actually quite different. No, I think you're absolutely right. I, I mean, Zionism as a philosophy or ideology should no more be immune from criticism than communism or socialism. Right. Whatever, you name it, whatever ism. Um, and it should take its place uh, in the list of ideologies, creeds that we examine and look at. Um, but I think your point is actually right. Uh, without being an anti-Zionist or saying as I would do, actually, you see, I'm a diasporist in the sense that um, I see great value in the diaspora. Mm -hmm. And the sp I don't believe in putting all your eggs in one basket anyway. Um, and it's a false argument. It's a lamentably stupid argument to suggest that had Israel existed in 1938, the Holocaust would not because one wonders what Israel from there would have done to uh, stop the Wehrmacht in its tracks when it rolled through, you know, Belgium, France, in six weeks sort of right. thing. Um, it would have been able to absorb refugees had they got away in time, that is true. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think the existence of Israel simply in itself would have stopped um, 
Hitler's mad schemes or his ability to implement them in Poland and the heartlands of Europe. Um, so one can be a diasporist. As an example, uh, in his own way, uh, Philip Roth is, you know, and then always proclaim the value of the diaspora, right. uh, which I would do ideologically, theologically, and so forth. Um, but uh, to say I believe which I do, in the right of Israelis to have their own sovereign, secure land, as I do in the right of France, England, you name it, sure. and be it said, Palestine as well, uh, a discrete, discrete group of people who speak the same language, have history, etc. in common, to say we are a people, a nation. Uh, one can believe in that and yet be intensely critical as I can be about the Conservative government in England. Absolutely. Or the How they execute their particular policies exactly. and, and I, what have you. Exactly. It doesn't make you anti-British no, exactly. to, to question Exactly, it. exactly. Um, again, I suppose that the excuses are wearing thin now. You, you see, one could have said maybe in 1950s or 1960s, well, it's a new country. Israel is a new country and we're, we've got over and we've not yet assimilated. And I would have to say, I don't think we yet have fully absorbed or assimilated the enormity of the Holocaust and what it did to our psyche. Um, maybe it will take five generations, you know, sure. uh, to have um, Afro-Americans got over slavery yet. You know, to, th these things do take time. I would use the excuse, I, I say in the first 20 years of this state, or whatever, 30 years, well, you know, it's a young man, we've got all this to absorb. But the question is um, which way you're going. I mean, your book is entitled, This Is Not The Way. Mm. And, and so it's one thing to say, well, it's going to take a long time for, for, for us to get there, for us mm. to be in the right way. But if we're going in the wrong direction, if well, we're, yeah. then, then arguably and we're never going to get there. No, it's true. And, and I think probably... Uh, Purging ourselves of this notion of victimhood would be a very important start, actually. Hmm. Uh, I don't know how much we genuinely believe it now, because, you know, Israel does all these wonderful things and raids Entebbe and gets, you know, does marvellous things. Um, so we're not, not victims in the real sense of being perennially down, but we, we like to play the victim, you know, because we suffered this, therefore hmm. you should give us a certain latitude that you don't allow to other people. So let's get back to this question yeah. of we. I asked you about uh, Jewish values. You mm. gave me so, liberty. Yeah. You gave me justice. Um, I'd like to move a little bit, but only mm. a little bit. Now that we've sketched mm. out what these values are, uh, uh, as you alluded to at the very beginning, you make uh, interesting, and, and I think what many members of the Jewish community would consider to be quite provocative claims about who is a Jew and how mm. you decide whether or not you're, you're a Jew. Yeah. And essentially, your argument seems to be, you're a Jew if you think you're a Jew. Mm. Um, what, has the re what has the reaction been to, to that? And, and, and at some level, what do you actually mean by that? What I mean by, well, classically, a Jew was defined by the rabbis as anyone born of a Jewish mother or who converted to Judaism under recognized auspices, i.e. orthodox auspices, when orthodoxy was the only game in town, right. you know. Now, let's just say about that, 
But interestingly, in the Bible itself, descent goes through the father, not mm. the mother. It's always X, the son of, not X, the son, I'm the son of the male. Right. Um, the son of David. Exactly, the son of Isaac, whatever it might be. It goes through the male line. At some stage, and scholars don't know exactly when, but they tend to put it in the Maccabean revolt time, the Maccabean era, when a lot of young men were killed in warfare, whatever it was. It changed to the maternal line. Uh, hence, the, it's a wise man knows his father. Men tend to go away. You know, they rape you, they run off, whatever. Mm. They don't pay for their children. Um, so it became the maternal line that was paramount. And that's codified in the Mishnah and in the Talmud. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has been the law ever since. Or, according to conversion, under recognized auspices, meaning orthodox auspices. What is interesting in the Talmud, I should just mention as well, where there's a prolonged debate about conversion, because in the ancient world, uh, there were so many choices and people move fairly freely between paganism, monotheism, the new religion of Christianity, which only required immersion, baptism, right. uh, faith, not works. Judaism required circumcision if you were a male, um, and study and observance of the dietary laws. But those people who have really carefully studied the sources the consensus is that in ancient times, rabbinic times, i.e. and the time of Jesus, the two centuries either way, the usual method was to accept somebody, then to teach them. So yeah. you'd have them in, um, and of course it's varied, as all social issues do, according to context, demography, the situation. So at times the rabbis are very favourable towards conversion. And it's no surprise that they make some of the greatest rabbis of uh, converted status or, or origin. <laughs> Kiba, Rabbi Hillel, the great Rabbi Hillel, they all had, uh, according to the Talmud, they all had um, heathen background. Really? Then, yes, absolutely. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Um, that would be at a time when life was okay. They weren't being persecuted, the Jews, or under Roman hostility, boot, whatever. At other times, you get critical remarks about convert, converts and conversion, which have to be seen again in their sociological context, when maybe the Jews were being persecuted, or people would come in and perhaps act as fifth columnists, informers mm. to Rome, you know. Mm. So one's always going to look at the historical context. But the consensus is that you accepted the person and then you taught them. Uh, accepted them after baptism, mikvah, immersion, mm -hmm. and circumcision if a male, and acceptance of the dietary laws and so forth. Um, so it was a much easier process than it became under, once Christianity became the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire, 
because then it became a capital offence to convert to Judaism, and there were severe punishments if you um, took a slave or whatever and converted them. converted them. So it became much harder. And this remained the norm all through the Middle Ages, when certainly in Europe the Jews were frequently under persecution, until the reform movement started in Germany in the early 19th century. And that made conversion easier because assimilation was a way to emancipation in a way. You know, so okay, we are like other peoples. And uh, it became easier under reform Judaism. Then in this century, no, I mean last century. The really. 20th century. Exactly, 20th century. <laughs> Uh, the liberal movement in this country and the American reform movement, they said we accept patrilineality as well as matrilineality. In other words, right. if someone is a, a Jewish father, exactly, and they're brought up as Jewish, we accept them as Jewish. It's called, I think, more truthfully, it should be called equilineality, <laughs> irrespective of you know mother or father. If they're brought up as Jewish, then they're being politically correct now. It would be politically <laughs> correct, wouldn't it? Uh, we'd accept them, and that has been the minority view still in the Jewish people and Judaism, because the Orthodox steadfastly would refuse such a definition, uh, and. Uh, Likewise, on the continent, for example, the European continent, uh, in France, in Germany, where there's a large Jewish population now, because a lot of Russian Jews have come in, mm -hmm. and in Israel, most of all, uh, it's still the classic definition, either through the mother or by conversion, under acceptable authorities. Right. My response is that nowadays the overwhelming majority of Jews in the world are cultural Jews. In other words, we attach ourselves irrespective of whether our mother, our father, our grandmother, grandfather were Jewish, we attach ourselves to the culture, uh, the traditions, uh, ask a Jew what is it keeps him Jewish, although he never goes to synagogue, eats bacon on Yom Kippur, whatever it might be, and he'll say tradition, tradition, you know, I, I like Seder night, whatever. Right. Um, I like Passover, I like right. whatever it might be. It's what my parents did, Jewish history, it's what I identify with. And if it's that, therefore I regard myself as Jewish. And presumably some resonance with the values as well. I mean, well, uh, one, okay. one would hope. Well, one hope. But these are, these are as a, as a moral values, not necessarily religious values. Right. But yeah, right. I accept your point. Okay. If they say, I, I feel, I regard myself as Jewish, I would say, you are Jewish because you have voluntarily, it is self identification, right. which is the most honest kind of identification. You know. Equally, there are people in this category who would say, Jewish background, I regard myself as, a, as Christian, Church of England, or whatever, or, or agnostic, you name it. Right. Fine, that is their choice. 
as well, voluntary identification. And I would say, what can be truer than the way you define yourself? So if Dale comes along and says, uh, well, you know, I had a Jewish great-grandparent um, is it? On my father's side, whatever. <laughs> and, but you see, as far as I'm aware, Dale has not said, but I, I feel myself Jewish. Well, that's half Dale. Yeah. Dale? That's actually a quarter Dale. Yeah. <laughs> well, if he wanted to identify, I would say, fine, I welcome you to the Jewish people. You know? Right. And they, it's anybody who's mad enough to want to join the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> of their own accord. Of their own accord. <laughs> deserves to be given respect for that choice, yeah. You had this wonderful, uh, turning it slightly on its head, there's this quote which I'm going to misquote by Kafka. Uh, so there, there are many people, of course, who, who are Jewish who, who don't necessarily feel this, uh, this resonance, although they acknowledge their, their Jewish lineage, mm. because that, uh, he said something to the extent of, and you'll have to correct me because I'm sure I'll get this wrong, but something to the extent of, um, what do, what do I have to do with the Jewish people? I don't even, or how, in what way do I, do I belong to the Jewish people? I don't even belong to myself so, most of the time. It's a very good, you, you, you quoted accurately. It took me a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but um, absolutely, a, a very interesting response. Or Imre Kirch, you know, who won the uh, Nobel Prize for Literature in 2002. I mean, he was not accepted by the Jewish community in Hungary as Jewish because he had a Jewish father but not a Jewish mother um, and in the camps he wasn't accepted as Jewish as well by the survivors you know as yeah. so a his obsession his, his main theme is always self identity right um, not surprisingly well, he's not Jewish enough for one, and then, you know, too Jewish for others, for the Hungarians, as it were, so he gets deported. Right. Um, no, I, 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 and it's a very, it's a very modern existential sort of dilemma, really. We're constantly on, especially in multicultural societies and ever so mixed marriages across boundaries. I mean, you know, you're very ordinary. Uh, two white people. Did you just say I was very ordinary? Is that in the <laughs> sense that merely somebody from uh, Canada marrying a Dutch person? Hmm. You know, I, I mean, that would have been a hundred years ago. That would have been really quite um, bizarre. Hmm. Well, the Dutch how, are very generous. You know, they take pity on people. So. Well, but how would you meet for a start? You I know, um, no, no, I take your no. The most of the weddings I do seem to be nowadays seem to be between. You know, somebody from England who met somebody from China in Hong Kong or something, when he right. was sent out there by his bank, right. like he yeah. was working... And now they're living in South Africa or something. Exactly, exactly. Right. That is the very fluid modern world. Mm. So identity is something we are, and then you have children, and what are they, you know? Right. So I think if people voluntarily say, I, I feel Jewish, then it's very short-sighted to say, no, you're not acceptable. Uh, and it's going to be like the Mormons or something, you know. And there have been movement, the Karaites, the first great schismatic movement in Judaism, they might well have become a very serious sect and early challenges to 
rabbinic Judaism, had they not insisted on only marrying within their sex, mm. you know, other caveats, mm. um, which does tend to lessen the gene pool. Sure, the time. sure, and, and, and there is this, this sense of dissipation at some mm. level. I, I wanted to pick up on, on, related to all of this, of course, a strong theme that, that you've raised already um, today, but that you raise repeatedly in your, in your book, which is the I would call the triumph of cultural Judaism. Mm. This, this notion of it, you, you explicitly mentioned that there are, you could look at the world in, in three different, or look at the Jewish categories in three different categories. There is, uh, the, there is the Zionist Jew, there is the Orthodox Jew, there's a progressive Jew, and you strongly argue that there should, should now be considered uh, uh, this fourth category as, as the cultural Jew, which is actually independent of mm. all of these things, and presumably, um, certainly includes, but is not limited to uh, Jews in the diaspora, and, and, and mm. so elements uh, elevates them. Um, and there are there are a couple of interesting things with this. One is that it 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 pairs away, and you, we mentioned this earlier. It, it pairs away a large part of the religious aspects of Judaism, and and puts it in the in the category of tradition, of behavioralism, of of, of, of this sort of thing, um, and. You, related to that, you say a couple of things which, uh, which I think are actually quite provocative. You, you publicly, you've, you've presumably done this before, but you've publicly alluded to some of the difficulties you have with religion. Mm. You, uh, you, you give your views, that is, that is to say, specific religious dogma. You give your views on the fact that uh, uh, the Torah is, is, a, is a document, in your view, written by, is a book. It's written by human beings. Um, you talk about how sometimes when you were uh, when you were preaching in your in your capacity as as chief rabbi, uh, you were beset occasionally with some feelings of intellectual hypocrisy. You weren't really sure what was. Uh, uh, you had some some issues with specific aspects of what it was that you were actually preaching. Mm. Um, there were some. Uh, you, you give a particular passage where you're questioning um, the idea of an intervening God and the idea of a, of a divinely ordered sense of purpose and history, specifically mm. for the Jewish people mm. or otherwise, mm. which you were, which was, it was quickly brought to your attention that this is a destruction of two of the pillars of Judaism mm. and mm. so forth. Mm. Um, so I guess I have, I have two questions, uh, although it's taken me a while to get there. Um, my first question is, have you faced increasing amounts of flack uh, about these public avowals of some of these things? Because I could imagine they'd be quite provocative in, in the Jewish community. And the second one is a more general aspect of can, can it really, can this idea of cultural Judaism in the long term hold? If you take religion away uh, in the longer term, maybe 50, 100, 200 years, uh, will there be a coherent meaning to what it means to be a Jew? Yeah. Um, a small quibble before I answer. Quibble away. But don't call me chief rabbi. I was seen. I'm, so, I'm sorry. That, that is an orthodox. Uh, I'm sorry. I apologize. We, we, no, don't be serious. But we. Sure. Primus inter pares, maybe, or whatever. Right. But, you know, as senior rabbi of a large congregation. But um, the simple answer to your first question is no. Hmm. Much more. The response has been, gosh, David. Thank you for articulating what I feel right. when I come to synagogue about the prayers, about the liturgy, you know. So 
No, it didn't. Uh, I, listen, the ultra-Orthodox wouldn't read my book anyway. Sure, we weren't talking uh, about them particularly. The, but um, among the non-fundamentalist branch of Judaism, and I include in that many United Synagogue, by the way, which is the middle-of-the-road Orthodox okay. branch in this country, uh, among readers with that, it's amazing how much I agreed with David about this particular topic, theological topic. Um, and you're right, I think, I think you, you summarise very correctly, accurately. I don't believe in an interventionist God, which is really the sine qua non of Jewish theology, that God, special relationship with his people Israel, he looks after us, come what may, right. and has an ultimate plan of redemption for the world and for the world of his people Israel. I don't accept that. Um, the interesting question you ask is, uh, what will remain that is distinctively Jewish in a couple of hundred years or whatever, if one is simply reliant on cultural Judaism? Well, you see, I, I, I think cultural Judaism is a vast category, actually. Um, of which religious belief and ritual observance is a part. For some people, a very important part, a total part indeed. For others, just one, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, in the mosaic, in the pattern, it's one stone in the mosaic. Right. Um, ritual is a fairly innate human attribute of instinct. We all respond to ritual and need ritual. It always strikes me, I don't know if it's the same in France or Canada, I am struck, if there's a road accident, for example, in this country, tragic victim, young person, whatever it might be, what people do, and they put up flowers at the side. Yes, yes. They, they make an instinct. I, I think two things. I think, gosh, they are responding with a symbolic gesture. That's number one. But number two is, God, how, God, <laughs> gosh, <laughs> how bereft of any ritual and symbolism their life must be. Right. That's their outlet. This is, this is the only way they can right. because they don't go to church. Right. You, you know, they don't go to this funeral, presumably, right. whatever. Right. Um, ritual is an important, significant part. And Jewish rituals have lasted a long time, be it circumcision, which more and more Jewish women, incidentally, are questioning nowadays. Um, and what I've found is that um, though they question, and though they might be really quite ardent feminists, many of them, yet the force of tradition makes most of them, in the end, submit right. to handing over their child. Even though it is by no, it's one of the signs of being Jewish, but it's not, as it were, the sine qua non sign. Sure. Listen, many Russian Jews under communism had no opportunity to get circumcised. You know, so uh, 
in South America, I believe that many... Opportunity is a strange word, but I, well, I, I exactly, take that. Exactly. <laughs> I take your point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't have the... Yeah. Um, apparently in South America, you know, in Argentina and places like that was the largest community, because they're South American men, therefore they're very ma macho, you know, uh, nobody messes with me. Sure. Um, so, it's, but the prevalence of this ritual has survived many thousands of years. Um, so, ritual will still play a significant part for, I think, forever, as long as there's people. We, we respond to ritual, be it birth, marriage, death. A very important ritual is saying Kaddish, actually. Mm -hmm. more, I, I've, over the years of my ministry, it's amazing how people have gone furthest away from Judaism, as it were, quite elaborately disowned any involvement in it. Nevertheless, when they die, or when their parent dies, they want to say the memorial prayer, Kaddish, over the body. And they will want it in transliteration, they can't read Hebrew, anything like mm -hmm. that, to be able to say it. So the prevalence of honouring the dead, remembering your parents, is a very deep thing in all cultures, yes. is it not? In all cultures. Um, so I think that kind of thing, in however attenuated a form, will last. Uh, the, the, my, as I say, I, I make mention, I, isn't it interesting how the Passover Seder is such a deep, deep, ingrained childhood folk memory that, again, the most secular Jew will never refuse an invitation right. to a Passover Seder. You know, it's such an integral part of the tradition, of the, the memories, exactly, the, the whole experience. Exactly, the family, everything. So I think those things will still be there as glue for generations to come, for as long as people do have a need to pay tribute, worship, whatever it might be, respect nature, um, thank whatever it is that causes the world to go around. But then I would say cultural duty, in its broad sense, culture takes in art, literature, poetry, I would say, let me think of other things. There's Science, a, there's philosophy. A, well, if you want, absolutely. yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, not if I want. I mean, that's but, there. Yes, okay. well, okay, no, absolutely. <laughs> that, that, uh, if it's imbued, it's very interesting. I mean, it can work malignly as well. When I say it can work malignly, it's interesting that in um, Soviet Russia, after the revolution, well, after, you know, until Stalin, right. uh, from 1917 onwards, even beyond Stalin, but uh, until he turned madly against the Jews in his last years. You know, um, something like 47% of the top echelons of the KGB were Jews. Hmm. Now, I wonder what that says about ingrained characteristics of secrecy, um, dissimulation, not being what you appear to be. Because for so long, those were precisely attributes Jews had to. Right, adaptability, adapt I suppose. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Um, plus, 
innate intelligence. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I would be surprised if you didn't say that. But exactly. <laughs> well, you, you know, place like, like, um, extraordinary on a different level, but but again, of uh, in the Weimar Republic, uh, Nobel Prize winners. I can't remember exact. An extraordinary number were Jews. You know. Um, we're just about ready to wrap up, yeah, uh, but but there are. Um, I feel myself flagging. No, no, no. You're doing you're doing you're doing a wonderful job. I just wanted to talk a, a little bit about um, this idea, moving moving to religion. There are two other issues I just wanted to touch on briefly. So there's this notion of religion as a source for good in the world, mm. an interfaith dialogue, and and from from my reading of, of uh, not only this book but but other things that you've. Uh, You've penned. You're very proud of, of your interaction with people of, of other faiths, uh, people of other um, orientations. Um, for example, if one goes into your bathroom, one has a picture of yourself with the Pope, which is, um, which is mm. not something that I uh, expected to find. Maybe the fact that it's in your bathroom is significant. No, no that's what Charles says. And the Dalai Lama as well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he said, so I said, well, you know, why do they have more innate respect than Arafat, who you'd allow in the bar? Right. <laughs> <laughs> they all, you know, they all evacuate in the same way, Carol. You know. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but perhaps I can combine this a little bit because the, there is this, this clearly this message that I'm getting from you is is the notion that we can work rational, well motivated individuals can work together to promote the causes of peace and harmony and justice, while at the same time doing so in a, in a human understanding way, understanding the human condition. On the other side of the fence, increasingly these days, one hears from the likes of Richard Dawkins, one hears from the likes of, or at least one used to hear from the likes of Christopher Hitchens and, mm -hmm. and uh, Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and all these mm -hmm. people who are saying, these are just silly superstitions that should be, mm -hmm. um, we, we should get over this. If we're to mature as a species, we should pare away all of this silliness. What, you, what you're calling tradition and culture yeah. should just be discarded. We should just be rational agents acting rationally uh, and not superstitiously. It's about time we, we move forwards in this direction. So how would, you, how would you respond to those people, first of all? How would, if I were, if I were mm. uh, Richard Dawkins sitting here mm. and saying those very words to you, how would you respond to me? Well, the first thing I'd say is that <laughs> would that human beings were rational agents. Mm. Uh, I'd love to be totally rational, but emotions will obtrude, won't they? Um, and, and therefore, I would no more deride a person's you know, I might not believe that the earth is square and if you travel to the four corners of the earth, I might not believe that the moon is made of blue cheese or whatever. Uh, people do, which hardly betokens complete rationality. Um, so there is in humans, I think, um, a sense of the numinous, let's put it that way, which doesn't have to translate into a belief in the God who made the world, and, so on. and I, I, I would always say that if ancient tradition is shown by modern knowledge and empirical evidence to be wrong, then modern knowledge, knowledge, must take precedence over tradition, which then becomes just mere superstition.
Right. So, um, likewise, when Dawkins points to all the evil that religion has been done in the name of religion, I would have to concede a lot of plausibility to it. I feel it myself. You know, when people murder each other about a wall or a holy temple, yeah. or, I, gee whiz, this is hardly rational behaviour. And being from the English empirical tradition, I would very much wish that one, you could say, not whether it's believable or not, but, but how, can anybody actually prove it? You know, have they seen it happen? Right. That would be my, my, my test ultimately. Um, and also, as I've always said, I've discovered through interfaith dialogue that I have more in common with a moderate of another religion than I do with an extremist of my own religion. And every Christian, every moderate Muslim, they'd agree with you. Sure. You know. Sure. Why is that? It's because we're engaged in a universalist discourse, actually. Um, so that, for example, I'm very proud of being a Jew. I think we are whispered it softly, very special, remarkable people, you know, not nation, people. Um, so I'm very proud of that. But on the other hand, um, I'm nourished constantly by my engagement with wider culture than, than just Judaism, you know. I couldn't imagine living without Shakespeare, without English literature, Without, without cricket. Without cricket, absolutely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all of that, all of that. So, and there's always been this tension in Judaism between particularism and universalism. Uh, is it the God of the Jews, the Hebrews, the God of all people? You know? And I've always been an unabashed universalist. Um, I think I'm a a more civilized, that'd be the word I'd use, I'm a more civilized human being, having been involved in wider society, in wider culture, when were I just a particularist Jew, involved only with Judaism or Israel, you know? So, um, that is what I take from mingling with other people of other faiths, where I get annoyed with religion is that, as I've been complaining about Judaism, it can tend to parrot platitudes. So, as I said, I think I might have said it in the book, um, you know, ask a Jew what's his core value, his subsuming her. What's a Jewish core value? Justice. Ask a Christian, love. Ask a Muslim, they'd say peace. Peace is the most frequently used word in the Quran and so forth. Yet how many times have we been guilty of injustice? How many times have Christians not shown love? How many times have Islamists gone to war, you know? Um, but we, 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 we parrot the platitude rather than going deeper, as it were, and, and say, okay, now what do we how do we really tell our people to try and practice this? 
do we have to get rid of certain key texts in our scriptures that encourage anti-Semitism, hatred of the Jew, or whatever it might be? Um, how do we go about this? And it's quite interesting, I remember a few years ago, <coughs> there was the bomb blast in London, 24-7. Um, it was in July, 50 people or so killed uh, in central London by Muslim terrorists. And so at my synagogue, we held a three-faith service of reconciliation. And I was asked to preach at it. And I'd started the dialogue with the mosque when it had opened in Regent's Park near the synagogue. And it had been a very good, close, tripartite relationship at first with the church at the roundabout as well. Um, and then it had petered out, uh, largely affected by the Middle East situation. You know, the, it tended to turn into a polemic. Well, it was polarised. It became polarised, basically. Uh, absolutely, but yeah, about Israel. Right. Well, you might be talking about love or whatever, it might be whatever concept. Um, so they rather beat it out, and especially after I retired, but suddenly it was politic for the mosque to be involved. So they came to the service, large attendance, and I preached and said, well, I said now about the three faiths right. and their core beliefs, but how often we don't practice them. What should we do? As a start, I said, it, it might be an interesting exercise to voluntarily excise use of those passages of scripture that are provocative. Hmm. I get these yeah, If I go to preach in a church, if I'm invited to preach there, it would be a very stupid vicar indeed, who as the gospel reading took something from the gospel of John, hmm. who's the most polemical and anti-Jewish of all the gospels, you know. Um, in, in the same way, I, if I invited Muslims to the synagogue, it'd be rather daft to take as a scriptural passage something about annihilating all the inhabitants of the land, you know, <laughs> when you conquer the land and go in. And similarly, with Islam, there are bits that are very provocative sure. and inflammatory about Jews. So the former director of the mosque was a very, very clever leader was knighted for his uh, leadership of the Muslim community, actually. And he said, you know, David does it. And he was now running a Muslim college in which I, I taught courses on Judaism. He said, interesting idea, David. Uh, I'll get in touch with you. Want to talk about this. And nothing happened. And the next time we met, because we met, we used to meet quite frequently. I said, by the way, Zaki, anything happening? And he said, it's not the right time, David, not a politic time. I don't know what was going on in the Muslim world at the time. But, you know, keep it, well, he's died since, so it'll be kept in his mind for a long time to come. But for whatever reason, Islam was not ready to actually consider voluntarily dropping, as I said, inflammatory bits of Holy Scripture. Now, I find it equally incredible the way the Church now, Church of England, mm -hmm. you know where you stand with Catholicism, 
But it's getting into such a twist about women priests mm. or homosexual bishops and comes up with these ridiculous compromises such as saying a homosexual bishop is okay if they're in a celibate relationship. Yes, believe it or not, and this is, this is the compromise, yes, you might well look surprised. Um, so if you believe that Bishop X is in a chaste relationship with his partner Y and they go to their separate bedroom, you know, who's that I'm going to listen to him as a spokesperson for the will of God, but otherwise not. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it extraordinary? So, um, I, I, I'm quite impatient nowadays with inter, so-called interfaith dialogue, because I don't think it, it's at all, you know, um, it's not moved on from platitudes about its own religion or towards another religion. And that's why I've lost patience with it rather. Again, the same way that I get irritated by proclaiming Jewish virtues, but not uh, applying them right. when it comes to Israel-Palestine. Well, this has been a very, oh, very exciting, exciting uh, conversation. Well, well perhaps it was exhausting for you, but it certainly was uh, stimulating well, for me. So, uh, so thank you very well, much for your time, David. My pleasure. My pleasure, Howard. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Religion, along with separate discussions with Niall Green, David Hollinger, Eleanor Nesbitt, and Miri Rubin. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.